Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. What does a good school look like? How does a good school operate? What does a good school do differently? There are probably many correct answers to these questions, but today I want to narrow it down and focus on a particular school, Michaela, that has a very particular set of answers to these questions. Located near London's Wembley Stadium, Michaela is a free school that opened its doors in 2014 and today has the highest GCSE value-added score in all of England. Michaela is known for its strict behavioral practices, its unique school culture, and its unabashed promotion of small-c conservative values. To talk about what makes Michaela tick, I invited the inimitable, fiery, and always entertaining Catherine Burblesing onto the podcast. Catherine Burblesing is the founder and head teacher of Michaela and the editor of Michaela, The Power of Culture, and Battle Hymn of the Tiger Teachers, The Michaela Way. She was previously the chair of England's Social Mobility Commission. Catherine, welcome to the report card. Thanks for having me. So I have been following you for some time, and Michaela has made news all the way over here in the States, but not everybody in our audience is going to be familiar with it. So let's just start out by you describing your school, Michaela. Where is it? When did it start? What age students do you serve? Give me the basics. Yeah. So it's 11 to 18. So it's what's called a secondary school here. We opened in 2014. So we've been open for eight years. We are what is called a free school, which is sort of similar to your charter schools. Um, Your charter schools have been going since the 90s. Ours only started in 2010. So it really was a massive fight to set it up, although I understand many of your charter schools also have fights to set up. I mean, there were protesters outside, you know. Oh, there! I told you the boobs were going to go. The kids are going to change lessons now. And... um, yeah, so we had parents' evenings where disruptors would come from outside of London. They'd bust them in and they'd stand amongst the parents and start screaming abuse at us and all kinds of nonsense. But uh, it took us three and a half years, therefore, to finally open. We opened in 2014, but the idea started in 2011. We wanted something a little bit different from what you might normally find in state schools. And so, you know, all the teachers here buy into what we are, which is we're strict and um, with behavior and we are traditional in terms of the way we teach and the knowledge that we teach. And as such, you know, we've we've made quite a really nice school. Uh, We now get about 800 visitors a year who come to see what we do from all over the world, often teachers who come and take some of our methods and go back to their classrooms or their schools and change things for themselves or just people who are coming to see because they've heard on social media about this weird school, so they want to see what's going on. And everybody always says, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. Um, The kids are so polite, they're so clever, they're so, uh, you know, knowledgeable. So, um, you know, I suppose it's been a success, really. It certainly sounds like now just a couple more parameters you can think about this from the American context and say, well, well, it sounds like it's eaten or something like that. What is the nature of the students you serve? How many? And, you know, just describe that kind of. Yeah. So we've got, let's say, about 750 kids. We're in the inner city in Wembley, so near Wembley Stadium, a generally, you know, not very well off area. You know, there are kids here. I mean, they're mainly ethnic minority, uh, inner city kids. I've always worked in the inner city in London. I've never worked anywhere else. And we have a pretty standard intake on that kind of level. 
But, you know, we have a behavior boot camp that happens when they arrive at the beginning of year seven so that the kind of inner city, well, what can be inner city disruption that takes place in classrooms isn't really there. And finally, in terms of performance, again, for an American audience that doesn't really understand how schools in Britain are going to evaluate performance, your test scores are relatively stupendous. Is that a fair characterization? Yes. At 16, uh, kids here take what are called GCSEs in all kinds of subjects, from French to history to geography to maths to English, etc. And schools are judged according to how well the kids do. But also, more specifically, they're judged on the progress that kids make from when they start at the beginning of year seven and when they end at the end of year 11. So they spend those five years. Now, there are another two years that children can go on and do afterwards, but those GCSE exams are taken at age 16. And schools are judged by the progress that they make. So last year, we got the highest progress eight in the country. So we are doing very well in comparison and the kids, you know, they, we've got some kids going to Oxford and Cambridge. We've got other kids, you know, we've got a real variety of kids, you know, that span the ability range. But nobody's leaving here functionally illiterate or functionally enumerate, which is what happens to about 20% of the country. You know, it's great because, um, well, all the kids, whatever their backgrounds and whatever their ability, they manage to really exceed what people would normally expect of them. Well, it sounds like a good start. So, you know, those are sort of broad strokes. And I've been looking at The Power of Culture, a really interesting book. We'll put it in the show notes for folks. It's just got a lot of chapters on a lot of topics. But I want to zoom in on a couple that I think exemplify the differences that you find in Michaela and just have you talk about them. Both of these things are something that other schools might be able to kind of borrow. So these are interesting. So the first thing I want to talk about is how you do teacher feedback and observation. Can you talk a little bit about how teacher feedback works at Michaela and include in that not just formal feedback, but also the ability for other teachers to, you know, observe their peer teachers at Michaela? Yeah. So we don't really distinguish. There's no real kind of formal feedback, as it were. There's just loads and loads of feedback all the time. So I would say that teachers have Somebody in the, especially if they're new to the school, they have somebody in their classroom probably a couple of times a day. Um, but everybody has teachers in and out all the time. Guests are always in and out as well. Uh, there are a couple of chairs at the back of the classroom for when the teacher who's visiting can sit at the back. We use our phones. We uh, will immediately write some feedback onto the phone and then send it to the person who's teaching right away in real time. Our observations might be 10 or 15 minutes, so it's something you can do really quickly. You're just getting a shot at, oh, let me see what's going on in here. Great. That's interesting. Let me move to the next. Let me go to another class. I mean, sometimes you might spend longer, but often not. Uh, You would copy in the email uh, that we call feedback email. And in that feedback email, you'll have senior team. I'll be in that email and the head of department you would copy in so that everybody can see what's being said. And it tends to just take the, the line of, oh, you know, this was interesting. That was interesting. You might try this or you might try that or whatever. Um. It tends to be very um, just matter of fact, and it, because it happens so often, people aren't worried about it. There is no consequence that comes from it, so you're not being held to account by any of these observations. We don't even call them observations. They're just people going into each other's classrooms and sharing good practice. And it does allow me to know what's going on in the school, so I don't really spend much time in, in classrooms. 
mainly because I think I'm a bit scary. So I don't want people feeling scared and I don't want people putting on a show. You know, I think often elsewhere, people will book in in advance to do an observation on May the 5th, we're coming in and then somebody spends, the teacher spends ages preparing this particular lesson. We're not interested in what you're going to do as performance. We just we just want to share good practice and make sure that every day when you're delivering, you're delivering a high quality lesson. So, and it, you know, different people might have different targets and they'll have a line manager who might come in and see them. And especially when they first start, they need a lot of support and a lot of training to get them to be a Michaela teacher is what we would say, because we all deliver lessons in a similar way. You know, there are certain routines that we follow. There are certain structures and ways of being. And then once you have all those structures and routines in place, your personality and the relationships that you've got with the kids are really able to shine. So yeah, I, I think it is something, you know, other schools can take. I think it's a great way of creating a culture where people are happy to share and uh, support each other. So Catherine, this is very different how schools typically work in America, right? I mean, there's a lot of, well, I close my door and I teach or like you sort of characterized, I have a couple of sort of scheduled and then maybe a limited number per year of unscheduled observations, but it's certainly the exception rather than the norm. Is this distinctive among UK schools practice as well, or is this typical in UK schools? No, 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 no. What you just described is what is normal in UK schools. And how do your teachers seem to like this culture? It does seem, the way you describe it and the way it's described in the book, seems like it isn't just a different set of practices, but it it moves to sort of a different way of being or just a different culture in the school where it's sort of yeah. like, oh, well, yes, I am accustomed to people coming in and just giving me feedback. And it's part and parcel of the work I do. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, like I say, people aren't being held to account by it. People aren't being judged or humiliated by it. Everyone's just sharing good practice. But the other thing is that we believe in one best way of teaching, okay, which is the Michaela way. <laughs> So the mentality elsewhere is you do what you want to do, which you think might work best with the kids. And that's up to you. You might use a PowerPoint. You might use a booklet. You might use a textbook. Uh, you might do some pair work. You might do group work. You might do silent reading. I don't know, whatever it is. It's up to you to do whatever you want. And that's because we imagine that different intakes need something different and different classes need something different. And everything's very unique. You know, each each class is unique. And there is no one best way of teaching. So because of that, when somebody comes in to make a judgment of you, they're looking at the kids and they're looking at you and they're making a judgment of whether or not you have come up with this brilliant way of teaching this particular set of kids. Our teachers aren't being judged. Like, that's a huge thing to carry on your shoulders as a teacher. Frankly, there's no other profession that does that. When you're being judged by your, the surgery that you're doing as a, as a doctor, you haven't had to come up with a whole new way of doing surgery on the spot. You haven't decided, well, with this patient, I'm doing the surgery in this way, but with that patient, I'm doing the surgery in another way. You always just deliver the same surgery all the time. Now, sometimes things might go wrong or whatever. You have to fix it in some way, but otherwise there's a procedure that you've been taught and you are then delivering. That doesn't happen in teaching. It does happen at Michaela. So your soul isn't being judged. You know, your abilities as a person aren't being judged at Michaela. What's being judged is how close are you to the Michaela ideal? And if you're new, then you're very much wanting to learn how to do that. And you very much welcome the observations because 
well, you know that there's one best way and you're, you haven't got there yet. And it's okay because you're new. <laughs> so you're trying to get as close as possible to that, you know, as, as soon as possible. So there's no sense of shame in it because what you're doing is what everybody else is doing because everybody's just aiming to get to the same thing. And it also means that every time you have somebody in observing, you know precisely what they're looking for. One of the big problems in other schools is that, well, you're left to the whim of the observer. <laughs> the One observer loves group work, so they loved your lesson. Another observer hates group work, so they hated your lesson. Whereas with us, everybody's saying the exact same thing all of the time. So there's a consistency and a security in the predictability of what you're going to get told and what you're all looking for. So when the observer says, well, you could have done that, you could have done this, or look, watch out for this, the person who's being observed goes, yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah, I see that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks so much. Oh, I didn't realize. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, there's no sense of, no, I disagree with you. No, I don't want to do that, which is what happens elsewhere because there's no consistency of approach and no agreed goal of what a lesson should look like. And Michaela, it seems the fact that the teachers hold this in common rather than the right. head of school is handing this down from on high, that it's just a different functional form of shaping practice in a uniform and consistent way. That's right. We all agree on what it looks like. The problem is elsewhere is that nobody agrees. And then you're just left up to the whim of the observer. And you don't really agree with the observer. And when the observer is coming in, you don't know what they're looking for. right? right. So you're terrified because it's all up to their whim. Whereas here, you're not, there's nothing to be terrified of. You're just um, all sharing good practice. So let me ask you about a potential objection that I think some folks could have on this. You know, if there's one sort of uniform way about how you do these things, then teachers may not be able to develop relationships with students and have that personal connection that comes through them. And, and I'm, I'm speaking in an affected voice because I, I don't necessarily think too much of this, but I, I wonder how you deal with those sorts of objections. I mean, you are a very strict school. You have a very clear idea of how things should be done. Mm -hmm. um, does that interfere with personal connections and intimate connections between students and teachers? Well, I would say it ensures that the relationships are even better because if you're having to rewrite or remake the wheel every time you're teaching a lesson and you're having to create all these amazing PowerPoints and you're meant to be all singing and dancing and you're doing all of this stuff, you're so exhausted. <laughs> um, you're not able to build relationships in the same way as our teachers are able to. When everything is, when it's all very predictable and teachers know what they're doing, that's when you can have all your jokes and you can smile and you can build those relationships because kids are also more likely to behave in a predictable environment. They're not in groups in one classroom and in rows the next classroom and in a horseshoe the next classroom. In fact, they're just always in rows. They know exactly where they're sitting. They know exactly what's expected of them. They know they're going to do turn to your partner and they know they're going to do some writing and they know they'll do some class discussion. Like they know it's all the same. And then that means they can really get to grips with the knowledge that they're being taught. And it's really exciting because they're actually learning loads. And that means they build a wonderful relationship with the teachers. All of our guests say the thing that they're most impressed with are the relationships and the fact that the children all have their own personalities that are really able to shine through, as opposed to in some places where only the louder kids get heard from or the, the more confident kids get to answer questions. That isn't the case here. So, yeah, I'd say it's exactly the opposite, which is that it's through this kind of predictable atmosphere that you then are able to build wonderful relationships. 
So let me zoom in on another point of culture at Michaela. And I'll just ask you, can you describe how you all do school lunch? Yeah. So it's very different. We do what's called a family lunch. And we do that because a lot of our kids don't necessarily have a dinner at home, family dinner. And so they learn what it is to sit around a table and eat the same thing as everybody else. So you don't get up and go to the canteen and pick out what you want. You all eat the same food and you sit around a table in groups of seven. Each one has a role. One pours the water, one puts out the cutlery, one goes and gets the food and all this kind of thing. And then they serve the food to each other and they eat. And then at the end, they pack the food away and they also take a cloth and they wipe down the table. I remember the first time I mean, we took this from another school, and I remember um, seeing this at another school. It's a very rare thing to do. I mean, there's maybe, I don't know, 10 schools in the country that do this. But um, I remember seeing it and thinking, oh, my goodness, that child has picked up a wet cloth. (laughs) He's touched it with his hand, and now he's cleaning the table. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. And, of course, that's what our kids do every day. Um, while they're eating their food, they're given a topic of conversation to discuss, uh, you know, what do we think of circuses? Are they a good thing or a bad thing? What could be anything that you t- they talk about? The lunch leader gives them the topic. And the idea is that they're able to talk and have a decent conversation while at the same time cutting their food and eating. That's a skill that you need to learn in life. At the end of lunch, we do what are called appreciations. It's an opportunity for kids to publicly thank their teachers or their friends or their family. And they stand up and they'll say, I'd like to thank Mr. Smith for helping me with my homework today or whatever it is. On the count of two, one, two. And then all the kids clap. And, um, you know, you're looking at nearly 200 people in the, or more, yeah, about 200 people in the lunch hall. And, you know, the kids, well, they do public speaking, essentially, is when they're doing that. A short bit of public speaking. They stand up, talk to everybody, sit back down. So it's a lovely, it's a lovely thing. I mean, I always say it's the beating heart of the school. Whenever guests come to visit, they always sit in lunch at some point because you really see that the school is not just about the academic side of things, which we aren't. I know we do very well academically, but we're also about building those soft skills in children so that you can help develop the whole child. Uh, Catherine, this strikes me as a very small C conservative approach to lunch in that there's this art that may be less experienced by a lot of families today that may have been sort of this archetype from an earlier age and that you're sort of institutionalizing something that a lot of kids would not have gotten. And the thing that is being sacrificed is this sort of time in many schools when kids get to let their hair down and just get a break. Does that strike you as correct? Yeah, that's right. So... Sadly, these days, I think there are a lot of kids, even the kids who are in two parent families, you know, you would imagine perhaps would sit around the dinner table, etc. People don't. People have their own Netflix. They have their own social media. Everything is individualized. People have their own phones. They might take dinner and go and sit in front of the TV or sit in front of their computer or they sit at the dinner table with their phones. There isn't that conversation that ought to happen between the children at the table and their parents, as you imagine, you know, the Brady Bunch kind of thing. (laughs) Uh, It just isn't happening anymore. So, and I think that that really goes a long way to socializing children and helping them to, um, you know, understand that, you know, one, you have to eat food that you don't necessarily like. Two, you have to help participate in this team effort of looking after the table, cleaning it up, serving the food, pouring the water. 
Three, you have to have a conversation with people. Now, they all have set seats, so they're not sitting next to their friends. They're just sat next to various people, so nobody's left out at lunch. There's no bullying that goes on, which often happens at lunchtime where kids are left out. Everybody has a set seat. You're not sitting next to your friends. And then you're talking about a topic that, you know, when you're 35 and you're out at some lunch, you know, with your client and you're having to talk about things that you wouldn't necessarily want to talk about, <laughs> similar kind of thing. They're talking about things, they're having philosophical discussions, political discussions, and they're just, tr we're trying to make them into adults who are able to do that kind of thing. And uh, that's to value, when you say small C conservative, that's to value a community. That's to value your duty towards that community and not just thinking about the self all the time, wanting to uh, be part of something bigger than yourself. And that, that, yes, I would say is a very small C conservative approach, but I'd say that's the case throughout the school, not just at lunch. Fair enough. So to zoom out a little bit more broadly, you have a reputation for being strict. You may have heard this before. Uh, <laughs> uh, some people have given you this moniker, Britain's strictest headmistress. And I don't want to focus inordinately on the strictness. There's lots of things that make Michaela interesting other than the strictness, but it's a big thing out there. So quite simply, why are you so strict? Um, because it's good for children. You know, people seem to think that strict is mean. It's actually love. You know, if you love children enough, you'll be strict with them. And I would argue that when you're not strict with them, it has nothing to do with the child. It has to do with your feelings around yourself. You want to feel like you're somebody who's compassionate and kind. And so, in fact, what you do is you behave in such a way that means those children do not meet high standards. And then you say to yourself, well, look at me, I'm so nice. Poor child, he comes from a poor background. I'm not going to expect him to do his homework because he doesn't have a desk at home. Well, good for you. But you know, when he leaves school functionally illiterate five years from now, he's not going to thank you. In fact, he's going to spend the rest of his life being humiliated. And it would be much better for you to hold him to account and give him a detention when he doesn't do his homework so that he can learn how to read and write and be numerate, etc. So, um, we really push the kids and we expect a lot of them and we have high standards. If you don't do your homework, you get a detention. If you don't have a pen, you get a detention. If you were to talk in a lesson, you get a detention. And guess what? It means nobody ever talks in lessons unless spoken to or unless we've asked them to do some pair work. It means that the corridors are wonderful silent places where they move very, very quickly to their lessons. And it means that children who are 11 years old, who have a chronological reading age of a seven-year-old, uh, they're able to catch up faster because they're in lessons for longer and they're being exposed to their teacher and to the learning for longer. If you don't do that, in the inner city, it could take 10, 15 minutes before you start your lesson because the kids are running around the corridor screaming, fights are breaking out. You eventually get your class started and then little Johnny comes bursting in. Bam! The door flies open. He comes in. Everybody starts laughing. The teacher has to quiet them down again. Silence, silence. I need silence. You stand. You out. Oh, yeah. You know. And then Johnny goes, hey, man, I just arrived, man. I mean, like, look, who wants that? But wouldn't you far prefer your children to arrive in silence? They all stand behind their desk. Morning, miss. Right. Sit down. Off we go. We're on to this exercise. You know, that is what happens. So people are always accusing us. Well, I don't understand. Like, the people who accuse us, most of them, of course, have never worked in the inner city. So they have absolutely no idea what these children are having to go through. It's not like I've got some kind of fetish around silent corridors or I get some kind of kick out of 
putting a kid in detention. In fact, I'm not even putting the kids in detention. I'm in my office most of the time. <laughs> I'm meeting with teachers. And in fact, my teachers, when they start, are really uncomfortable about giving out detentions because everybody hates doing it because it makes you feel like you're mean. And I have to persuade my teachers of what I've just told you, which is that actually it's mean not to give the detentions. You love them when you give them detentions. And once my teachers are convinced of that, then they give out detentions. And I make sure I back them and that there's a centralized detention system so that the kids can go into detention. They always show up and the kids then don't misbehave. And so when you come here, the thing that is most amazing is how attentive they are in lessons, how so many hands are going up, how engaged they are. That comes because the culture is now there for that kind of engagement. And that comes from, you know, the naughty ones knowing, oh, wait a minute, I might get a detention. So the thing that I would immediately jump to is, well, you must give out tons of detentions. So, I mean, obviously you are willing to give out detentions, but does the willingness to give out detentions deter the amounts of detentions or are you giving detentions at a huge rate all the time? Yeah. So I would say certainly we give out far fewer detentions now than we once did because the culture has changed. And so the culture has just embedded it all the more. Um, I'd say most of our detentions are for homework. Uh, we do give out behavior detentions, but nowhere near as many as we do for homework. And that's because kids cheat on their homework. You know, <laughs> kids, we're not, we're not at home when they're doing this, when they're going on chat GBT and so on. And when they're, oh, I don't know, copying from each other on WhatsApp and et cetera, et cetera. So I'd say most of it is for homework or failed quizzes that we give them. We give them a quiz every week in every single lesson. Um, but you know, there are behavior detentions as well. But, you know, it's half an hour. They go in, they sit it, they go home. It's no big deal. There are four detention slots at the end of the day. So they could find themselves here till half past five if they were, you know, in all those detentions. But hardly anyone ever is. Normally, it's one detention. The vast majority go. And then you might find a few left in for the second detention. So you started Michaela from scratch, right? You created a school. Yep. Do you think that an existing school that had a very different culture and a very different set of existing pre-existing behavioral patterns could transition to a Michaela culture? Or is this the kind of thing that you have to start from scratch? No, I mean, look, you're never going to get it to be like this, but you could certainly get it to be 80% of this. No question. I mean, and I know of schools where they've done this. They've taken on lots of our ideas and they've completely transformed their culture. And I also know classrooms that have done this. So what I mean is a teacher listens to me, follows me for years, thinks, yeah, I like that idea. I'm going to do this. They've read our books, et cetera. And then they change stuff happening in their own classroom. And nobody else in the school changes anything, but they set the standard in their classroom and they change stuff. And they write to me and they say, oh my goodness, look, my life has transformed. Thanks so much for what you've done. Um, because my classroom is, is, is a much calmer place now and the kids are learning so much more. Here in the US, we have a set of schools that usually get called no excuses charter schools that will probably be sort of thought of as a parallel to Michaela in many ways. Um, I think that it's fair to say that many of those schools sort of started in secondary and then downshifted into elementary in large part because they struggled to get this behavioral component turned around in middle school or high school. And it's easier to sort of establish and carry through that culture in elementary school. You all start in what's the equivalent to our middle school, right? 11-year-olds, 11, 11 is that correct? I, yeah, year seven. Year sevens. How do you create that when kids don't matriculate from a school that had, you know, this demonstrably different set of cultural expectations? 
Yeah, well, it's interesting because I was just in New York and was talking about the exact same thing. So the problem you all have is that your high schools start in grade nine. And I think that's far too late. What you need really are your middle schools and your high schools to, to be put together because we get them grade seven and that's young enough. I do think grade nine is too late to turn them, you know, properly. I mean, we get a couple of kids who might join in grade nine here or in year nine who might even have been trouble at another school and then they've been sent to us. But because it's one or two kids, they just come into the fold. But if you get, if you start with that, the whole grade is coming from outside. Very difficult, I think, to turn them in, in grade nine. But in year seven, I think it's doable. And well, it's not it's- easy in year seven. I would say that most school leaders and teachers that I'm aware of would say it's probably much easier at five years old, six years old to create yeah. that thing. So how is it that you make that transition even in middle school? Okay. Well, when they arrive in September, we don't, I mean, we have some of the kids, the exam kids in grade 11 and 13 who are doing stuff with some of their teachers, but we don't have in year eight, year nine, year 10. So all of the teachers left are just on year seven. And for seven days, we only do behavior boot camp. And behavior boot camp, we don't do any math or English or science or any normal lessons. All of the lessons are around the Michaela ethos and why it is you need to become Michaela. So just like the teachers need to teach like a Michaela teacher, the kids need to behave and work like a Michaela pupil. And we spend, you know, all day, every day teaching them about perseverance, about how to be stoical. We teach them about Nelson Mandela. We say, look, he spent 28 years, 27 years in prison. You have a 20-minute detention, Mm -hmm. suck it up kind of thing. We are very clear about what we want from them, and we teach them how to behave. The whole point that we believe that children have agency, right? So I think a lot of people out there think children don't have agency, and it's not their fault if they misbehave. We believe if you teach children right from wrong, they can then choose between right and wrong. And if you choose to do the wrong thing, once we've taught you what to do, So in the first couple of days, there are no demerits and no detentions. And we make that clear because we say, you don't know what to do. We're now going to teach you what to do. And on Wednesday, we'll say, that is the day when demerits start. Everybody get ready. And then we're going around with like stopwatches and timing them and drilling them and marching them up and down the corridors and saying, right, do it again, do it again, do it again. Lunchtime is twice the amount of time so that they can learn all their roles. And uh, because they know, we know they're going to be very slow. So we're drilling and we're pushing and we're timing and we're rewarding. And then Wednesday comes and da da da, and then the demerits and detentions are given out, and then they sit them, and then then we bring in homework at some point during that week, and again we go on. Thursday is the homework day, da da da. This is how you need to do it. You need to get it right, and then they go home and do their homework, and then the next day we narrate it, and we spend loads of time narrating this and explaining this homework was good. This is why this homework wasn't so good. That's why it's on, and um, so that's for seven days. And then the rest of the school comes back and it's still the case that the year sevens haven't caught up to the rest of the school, which is fascinating because in most schools, your year sevens are your best behaved kids. Because what happens is your year sevens start on a high and then they get gradually worse as the year goes on. By the time they get into year eight, they're naughty, right? By the time they get to year nine, well, they're off the charts, right? So in fact, with us, it's the other way around where the year sevens are trying to catch up with the year eights and the year nines. Now, to a certain extent, there's still, there is a difference in that the year sevens are running through the corridors going, morning, miss, morning, sir, morning, miss. Whereas the year elevens, you know, they go through, they're walking a little bit more slowly and they'll be saying, you know, morning, miss, you know, they kind of nod and they push their chin up, you know? <laughs> so, 
So, um, and, and the little year sevens, you know, you could see the year 11s looking at the year sevens, like what, what drug are you on? You know, like, cause they're all, but, um, but what they are is clumsy and, and, and slow in that it's not that they're deliberately slow. They're just slow because they don't know what they're doing, you know? So, um, and then I'd say by the end of the term, they then rise to the top, you know, and then they're really, really, so you go into their lesson. So like, if year 11s are answering questions, they've got their hands kind of halfway up, right? In year seven, their hands are straight up, hitting the ceiling. Me, miss! You know, <laughs> it's a delight to watch the year sevens because they're so excited and they all want to learn something. And so it means you start from such a high, by the time they get to December, they're at such a high point that yes, they're going to come down, you know, over time. One little year seven boy said to me this year, he said, what is it with the year 11s? Look at the way they say good morning and good afternoon in the corridors. I mean, they're just, just terrible. I never want to be like a year 11. I will never be that way. And I said to him, well, you might just be a year 11 one day. <laughs> and you might be the same. Who knows? He said, I will never be like that. I'm like, okay, fine. Let's see if you get to year 11 and retain your enthusiasm. But what is startling to me about this account is the deliberation and the amount of effort that you put into inculcating these. This is how yeah. we operate. And, you know, generally speaking, you have a couple of hours of orientation at your average school. Let, let us yes. show you where things are. And then we're off and running. And it's quite a contrast. So, Catherine, we are the report card. And in the middle of these episodes, we have a section called Grade It. Are you ready? I am. Um, apprenticeships in secondary school. Yeah, I'd say, hey, I mean, we don't have any, but I mean, th- we don't have any because we have a sixth form that is highly academic and that's fine for our school. But in other schools that are perhaps less academic, I think definitely you want to have a whole variety of apprenticeships because that's how those kids are going to learn on the job. How about being UK's social mobility chair? Oh, well, that's a mixed one. I'd say maybe about a C, not because there was anything wrong with the position. And my deputy, he was brilliant. And one of the reasons why I left was because I knew I could hand over to him and he'd do a fantastic job. But I do like being able to speak my mind. And people kept telling me I couldn't. And they had a point, you know, as chair, you're not really able to say X, Y, and Z. And I thought, well, they do have a point. He could do a much better job than me. And I think that there is a real role in, in society for people who are able to speak out and say what they think, because so many of us can't. And I felt I was doing a disservice to society generally by not being able to say the things that I think. Uh, In that vein, how about being a provocateur? (laughs) Well, you don't want to be a provocateur deliberately just to provoke. If what you think is X, then we ought to be brave enough to say it. And I do understand why some people aren't, because you could lose your job. You could lose all your friends. You could be, you know, hated by everybody. I mean, I'm, you know, a point in question. But, but then what that means is n- nobody's ever saying what they think. Everybody's uncomfortable. And there's nothing is real. This was one of the things about Michaela that I think makes us very different to other schools is that everything is real. We have real conversations with each other all of the time. We're not pretending. Nobody's presenting with a PowerPoint and going through stuff that doesn't mean anything where everybody's the other people listening are just nodding away and thinking, when can I get out of here? We don't waste our time. Everything is real. 
uh, and we give each other real feedback in real time and we want real, you know, real solutions and real impact on the kids. And people come and tell me, you know, I get feedback from the staff saying, look, this isn't working. That's not working. I know you think this is happening, Catherine, but it's not. And then I say, oh, thanks so much. And then I give them an error correction star because, or a candor star. We've got these two charts for candor and for error correction because I want the staff to come back and tell me what's wrong. And I'm always saying to them, I depend on you to feed back to me, just like you depend on me to feed back to you um, because we're all in this together. And yeah, I just think we need to be truthful. And I think too often, I think people are so used to not being truthful. They don't even know what truth looks like, right? They've got so used to pretending, they feel deeply uncomfortable with the truth. Um, and when somebody comes along and does speak the truth, they get very angry with you because they're, they're saying, how dare you? You're not allowed to speak the truth. And um, that's unfortunate because the truth will set us free. <laughs> so I bring you back to the requirement for a grade on being a, a provocateur. Oh, I see. Well, the, the I, yeah, I don't like the word provocateur. Indeed. You know? like, so I suppose I'd give that a D, you know, but if you were <laughs> to say being straightforward and truthful, I'd give that an A. Sure. Uh, fair enough. Standardized tests. Um, yeah, A, A plus and a half, you know, like, come on. I mean, look, these people who don't like standardized tests, well, guess what? Everybody's going to fail everything the rest of their lives. You know what standardized tests are doing? It's keeping us in check as teachers. That's what it's doing. Like, it's not just keeping the kids in check. It's keeping us in check because it means that we're actually going to teach them something. Now, I know teachers around the world listening to this will say, oh, my goodness, how terrible. We don't just have to teach to a test. No. No, that's true. And we most definitely do not teach to the test. In fact, one of the things that's so mind-blowing about Michaela is how much the kids know about everything. The whole point about tests is that you're meant to teach them a whole load of stuff. So my hands are showing now, you know, are spread out. And then when you get tested, you get tested on a small amount. And I brought my, my, my hands in. But you don't know where you're going to be tested. It could be over to the left. It could be over to the right. And so because you don't know, you then teach them everything. And then in the end, you get tested on some bit of it. That's, that's how good standardized tests should work, right? Now, I can't say for the American ones. I mean, I've seen some of the ones in New York. You know, multiple choice tests can be good, but I'm not saying they're all bad. But, you know, what we do here at GCSEs, kids are writing essays. They're doing all kinds of mathematical equations that they're having to write out all the steps, you know, and then examiners mark these tests as opposed to a computer. So I do think that there is um, a value in discussing what the standardized test should look like. But you definitely need a standardized test because you need to hold the schools to account to meet certain standards. And you need to know which schools are failing to meet those standards, because otherwise parents have absolutely no clue whether or not that's a school where you're going to get good results or bad results. Cell phones in schools. Yeah, well, an F, obviously. I mean, not only do we say that kids shouldn't have phones in the school, we say they shouldn't have them at home. My position is you shouldn't give a phone to your child until they're 16. And you can give them a brick phone. We sell brick phones for the parents. So you can ring them, you can text them, but they're not accessing the internet because they shouldn't have unsupervised access to the internet because then they're going to meet gang members and pedophiles and all sorts of crazy people. And parents kind of roll their eyes when I say this, but trust me, you know, in fact, we just had an incident just the other day is involved in some terrible situation with some other kids from another school. They've had to involve the police. The parents are pressing charges. And of course, we then said to the mom, well, you didn't listen to us, did you? You, you let him go online. You got him a phone. If you'd listened to us, he wouldn't have been involved in the situation. And you know what? To her credit, 
she said, you're right. I didn't listen to you. And now I've taken away the phone and I've learned my lesson and I shouldn't have given him the phone, right? Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've had that experience. Not just massive physical altercations, but, uh, oh, I can think of one girl, a 27-year-old man coming in and out of the shower, sh- showing her videos of this. Mother has no idea that this is going on. Like, I've got so many stories. I could spend the whole podcast talking about them. It's insane to give your child a phone. That's all I can say. It's insane. Parents shouldn't do it and have them in school. What the hell is wrong with all of us? I mean, every altercation that we have starts on the phone, starts on social media, starts somewhere because the parents haven't listened and they've given their child the phone. But when they're in school, obviously with us, if we hear it or we see it, we take it. Those are the rules. So you know what? We never see phones. I have to say it is very rare to see a phone at Michaela. In fact, we never, like we don't ever see it. The only time we ever take a phone is because they've left it in their bag and they haven't turned it off by mistake and then it beeps and we hear it and then we take it. But it is never the case that a child would deliberately take out the phone. I think that's probably happened twice in the eight years that we've been here. Hey, we've talked a lot about culture, but Michaela also does a lot of things differently, only some of which we've discussed But, you know, you could think about this as how might some of these things spread to schools? And there's two ways to think about this. Well, you have to transplant an entire coherent culture for a place to run in a way that Michaela does, because it's very different. Or it could be that there are particular practices or pieces that can be translated from one site to the other. So put differently, do you think the main thing that matters in the Michaela machine is the really good parts or all those parts working in a coherent culture? Well, all the parts make up the coherent culture. And yes, obviously, all of it working together makes Michaela. Having said that, you can take, you know, whatever bits you want, and people do all the time, and put them in your school. You could just take the idea of silent corridors. You could take the idea of having desks in rows. You could take the idea of the teacher always teaching from the front and doing explicit teaching. You could take the idea of having really strict behavior systems and centralized attentions. There's so many, you could take the idea of the kind of homework that we do and how we organize our lessons. You know, like you could do booklets instead of PowerPoints, which is what we do. I mean, there's so many things. Any one of those things that you take, I think will make your school better. Obviously, the more you take, I think the better you'll make your school. And why do I sound so arrogant when I say that? Well, because we believe in a best way of running a school. (laughs) So we too change. We didn't start in 2014 the way we are now. We've made changes along the way because we want to be the best that we can be. So right now we're the best that we can be, but it's possible that some new idea will come along. I've seen it at a new school. I go and talk to somebody. Somebody comes to visit and says, have you ever tried this? I think, no, we make that change. And then tomorrow we're even better than we are today. And that's how everybody should be thinking about their school. And I would just say what I've always done, like I said, we got family lunch from another school. We got the lines down the corridor from another school. We got silent corridors from another school. We got uh, turn to your partner from another school. We got so many ideas from other schools. So I go and take those ideas and then I make them ours. That's what every school should be doing is trying to get better. And you learn from what works at other schools. So rather than starting from scratch as if nobody's ever run a school before, go to your best schools, look at what works, and take those ideas and put them in your own. What is the central defining feature of Michaela that makes it distinctive? Like if you have to boil it down to one thing, where would you put your finger down on the the singular distinctive that Michaela organizes around? Well, I mean Look, I would normally say something like behavior, the teaching methods, and then the values. Those are the three things I would say. I suppose the values are the most important thing. 
which is why when I talk about small C conservative values, people then go, ah, I can't bear that. And they run. So then I go, okay, forget about the values, just do the behavior and, and do the teaching methods. But the behavior and the teaching methods are also small C conservative. It's just that people don't describe them as such, but that is what they are. But you see the values turn the school. You see schools that are just looking at behavior and just looking at teaching methods are very utilitarian. They're very much kind of, we want the kids to get a good job and this will get them a better job if they can just learn how to sit on a chair and they can learn stuff. So that's what we're in the process of doing when we teach them. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I think they're missing what it is to be human. I think they miss what it is to live a life that's worth living, that gives you purpose and reason to wake up in the morning. And that's when I talk about the values of community, self-sacrifice, duty, personal responsibility, decency, kindness, gratitude, a love of country, a love of your community and your family. All of those things, which are small c, are why I get up in the morning, you know? And the behavior and the teaching methods are all part of that. Uh, I think too often people don't recognize all of the values at Michaela. They just see the superficial stuff like the silent corridors or like the desks in rows. And look, your school is going to be better for it if you can do that. But if you really want to change the heart of the school to get the kids to buy into what you're doing and for the staff to buy into what you're doing, you have to look at the values. And that's where I struggle to persuade people. I find it much easier to persuade people on the behavior and on the teaching methods. But as soon as I start going for the values and trying to say, look, you want to change what you value in life, <laughs> um, that becomes a much more difficult argument to push. So, Catherine, you say you're a small C conservative and Michaela is built on many conservative values. You mentioned several just now. Personal responsibility is one that, at least in the U.S., is often coded as sort of a conservative watchword. Um, but not everybody is culturally conservative or small C conservative. So could there be a liberal Michaela? And if not, how do you sell those who aren't cultural conservatives on Michaela? Yeah, no, I don't think there could be a liberal Michaela. But that's where the distinction is that I was just saying. So the liberals will accept the behavior methods and the teaching methods. Some of them will. I mean, some liberals are far too liberal for even that, so they won't do that. But there are some liberals that will come so far as to say, well, we can do the behavior and we can do the teaching methods because they can see the utilitarian advantage there where the kids will be better off in the end because they're more likely to get jobs. The classrooms are happier places. The kids are better behaved. So the teachers are happier and they're able to teach. And because of that, they'll accept it. But no, you can't have a liberal Michaela. Of course not, because our values are conservative. And I will say that. As long as you are not taking on those conservative values, you will find it very difficult to get your kids to buy in to what you're doing. You'll manage it and you'll manage it by being sort of bouncers and standing over them and keeping them in line, but you're not going to get the natural buy-in. You're just, you're going to struggle with that. And that can only come with a conservative viewpoint. So there may be folks listening and say, man, that sounds great. And again, we'll link to the power of culture in the show notes, which I think is a really interesting tour of Michaela. But if a school wanted to try out some Michaela-like practices, where would you say is the first place they might want to start? Well, there's the book, but there's also the documentary. One of the ITV, one of the stations here made a documentary about us, which the producer has on a website called strictestheadmistress.com. <laughs> and um, if you go to strictestheadmistress.com, you'll find the film. And you can watch it. There are 12 rules on how to kind of raise children and, and have them in school and so on. 
I think it's worth watching because if you can't actually get into our school to see it, you do get into the school in the film and you can see the kids and you can see lunch and all of that kind of stuff. The best thing I would say, obviously, if people can, but I know they have to get on a flight, but if they come to London, they're all very welcome to visit. We have, you know, on the website, you can sign up. So at michaela.education, you sign up for a visit and you come and, you know, you get a tour with the kids and you can eat lunch and you can go into the classrooms and see what's going on. So then I think that's the most convincing thing. People always say, gosh, it's got to be seen because I'm speaking in a bit of a vacuum here, uh, which is why I agreed to that documentary because I thought, well, at least people will be able to see it on screen. So, yeah. There's that. And then there's the book, The Power of Culture, which really does go into detail. So, you know, teachers might enjoy that. It's written, written by our teachers, uh, just explaining different parts of the school and how it works. Yeah, I mean, I think you guys in America, you know, where you struggle a bit is just your whole, the way things are divided. You've got teaching staff and then you've got administrative staff and how they're very different and separate. Uh, we don't have that here in, in England. But I do believe in the power of, I mean, I was a teacher like this for most of my life. I believe in the power that a teacher can have in their own classroom, that even if you're not able to do it school-wide, there are all kinds of ideas that you can get from our book and from my Twitter. If you follow me on Twitter, for instance, and just listen to the things that I say, listen to podcasts I've done, um, you'll pick up loads of information and you'll be able to change your practice. And then in terms of the small C conservative values, just give it some thought, you know, think to yourself, personal responsibility. If a kid believes in personal responsibility, he doesn't come to school with a whole load of excuses on why he hasn't done his homework. He takes personal responsibility. And even if he's poor, and even if his brother's horrible to him, and even if, you know, his dad isn't around or whatever it is, he will always see it as his responsibility for not bringing in that homework. And then what happens is he starts bringing in that homework as opposed to always giving an excuse. And for a poor kid in the inner city, bringing in his homework every single day for five, seven years is going to mean that he's going to go to university. He's going to end up with a, with a job that he wants. He gets out of where he was born, you know? Like, why is that a bad thing? If you don't believe in personal responsibility, he'll just be giving you excuses all the time. And you'll feel like a compassionate person. And you'll say, oh, aren't I lovely? Look, I've let him off on his homework. And all those evil conservatives believing in personal responsibility. Well, you know what? My kids, hundreds of them, hundreds of them, right, going through, they are going to make successes of their lives, uh, and that's thanks to our conservative values. Oh, there's our pips again. <laughs> Two to time next. <laughs> thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guest, Catherine Burblesing. We'll include links to The Power of Culture and The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Teachers in the show notes. You can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. While you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. Send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions at ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. 